Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 58, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. It's looking very relaxed considering you spent most of today installing Linux. Yeah, well, I was pulling my hair out of Windows 10 because I've got a really low-powered laptop, like one of these kind of, you know, notebook things. Yeah. Uh, Chromebook ripoff from Asus and uh, I just... Windows 10 was just crashing constantly, flickering screen, everything. So I put Linux Mint on it, and it's nice and fresh, and it's running fast. I'm loving it. Well, I actually put it on my girlfriend's computer because I don't know what she does on her machine when I'm out and about. But every time I come back, it's got, like, malware and pop-ups and all that kind of thing in it. So I put yeah, Linux Mint on about a year ago for her. No problem with it since. Yeah, no, it's so, perfect. And yeah. if, if you're just sitting there surfing and watching YouTube, it's good for that, and typing a few essays. I'm not doing anything demanding. So. <laughs> well, you've been doing that this week. I've been um, snipping batteries out of my uh, Acorn Archimedes. Oh, okay. What is this to stop batteries leaking? Yeah, well, this is... Um, I got an, I, I've always wanted an Acorn Archimedes, um, and I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. I got one of the um, Acorn 3010s, you know, it's the one with like the green function keys along oh, the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got one of eBay, 40 quid. Thought that's a good bargain, isn't it? Didn't realise a mouse for it is impossible to get. Ended up having to fork out nearly 50 quid for a mouse for it. Ooh. It's got a weird little interface that nothing else has got. Then inside, I had to go and remove the battery. I've ordered a new one of them. I had to get a cable to plug it into a SCART, socket on a TV. That was about 20 quid. I spent over 100 quid on this thing now, so. It's like you got a bit of a headache. Oh, do well, the Acorn Archimedes, I mean, we are talking about it with Nostalgia the other week when we had him on, but, you know, it's a machine I used at school. I always wanted one, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, I kind of want one, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got some advice for you when you get one, <laughs> yeah. so let, let me learn the hard way. <laughs> That's it, I'll let you do the hard work and then uh, get one after. So it's quite nice to come in the studio and have a break from all that this week, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, what a show we've got for you this week, guys. We have indeed. Now, obviously, the show, every single week, the way it works is Ravi and I, we talk through the retro stories that have been making the headlines in the world of technology and retro news and then the second half of the show, we hand over to a very special guest. Now, if I said Earthworm Jim? Oh, yes, ZX Spectrum, Amstrad, and Probe Software. We're talking about Nick Bruti. Yeah, he's worked from the days of the 8-bit into 16-bit, into 32-bit 3D, and um, he's done amazing titles. You know, he kind of designed MDK. That okay. was his whole vision as well. Well, Earthworm Jim, I remember, you know, I remember my friend Martin getting that when he, he had a Mega Drive when we were a kid, and it was, you know, I, I had an Amiga at the time, but I was actually really jealous when I saw that game. I didn't want to admit it, you know what I mean? But oh, the it was... graphics, it was so cartoony, and, you know, he worked on Aladdin and yeah. games like that, which were just the first ones where we really saw cartoons on computers looking smooth, you know? Yeah, as good as the Disney cartoons did. Yeah, so yeah. this guy is really, really interesting. Nick Bruti is our special guest this week, and you can check him out on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, it is you that lets us continue doing this show, because we have stuff like, you know, SoundCloud premium subscription, so we've got, you know, more than five episodes up on there. Yeah, and also tracking down all these guests, you know, it takes <laughs> a lot of effort and time. Website hosting costs that we have and all that kind of thing as well. And we do have a little donation button on our website, theretrohour.com. If ever you want to put, you know, it could be like a euro or a pound or a dollar or something like that. I get people emailing going, you know, you gave me a mention last week and you said my donation was generous, but I only gave you like a dollar. Like, dude, every donation that we get to the show is massively appreciated. Totally. And if everyone gave a dollar, we could do this full time and quit yeah. our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for your donations. And making the Retro Hour Hall of Fame this week, thank you, Gareth McKee. Michael Keefe. 
the team at Robinson Technologies. Simon Pilgrim. And Scott Rowley, who all made donations on the RetroHour.com. A little PayPal button is on there if you want to show your support. And also, keep your iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud comments, reviews, all that kind of thing coming in as well. That is all massively useful. Let's us know what you're thinking of the show and helps us rank up a bit further in those uh, iTunes charts and stuff too. Totally. And we are thinking of doing something totally unique on YouTube at one point. I think... We may be experimenting with uh, some live phone-in show, possibly, Dan. Yeah, we had this idea, didn't we? Because obviously we come in and we, we do the show in a proper studio, um, we, uh, <laughs> to the disappointment of some people. <laughs> I know we did actually put a video up of us in the studio. This is a proper, like, you know, thousands of pounds worth of kit radio studio that we record this in every week, a broadcast studio. <laughs> One guy was like, uh, oh, I thought you went around Ravi's house with the credit Carlsberg. Yeah, <laughs> not. But um, it does mean that we've got the technology in here to do. We thought we should do, like, you know, radio call-in shows that you get, a live one. Maybe like in a retro helpline or something. Yeah, or on your YouTube channel because, yeah. you know, we pre-record this so we don't get to interact with you guys directly. Yeah. And I reckon that could be pretty hilarious if we did that live, so. That could be. Hope we don't get any uh, prank calls. Oh, <laughs> see, you're asking for it now, Dan. <laughs> so uh, look out for that in the next couple of weeks, of course. Um, if you follow us on Facebook, uh, just search for the Retro Hour podcast. Like our page there. We'll keep you up to date with when that's coming. We think it's going to be a Sunday afternoon, one week. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, do we'll let a, you know. We'll do it in a little studio, probably an hour long. And, uh, you know, if you've got any questions, get them ready hopefully we'll get some calls otherwise we'll look a bit stupid yeah just sitting there with a phone <laughs> how, how are you Ravi yeah. <laughs> any problems you want to talk about we'll be here all night then wouldn't we <laughs> oh, so uh, we'll keep you up to date on that do give us a like on all your social media accounts we're at Retro Hour UK on Twitter as well right then before we get into uh, this week's special guest Nick Brucey let's get into this week's stories now you found something pretty cool because an Legend of Zelda um, celebrated its 30th anniversary this year and you found some original maps that were done for Zelda. Well, uh, Nintendo UK uploaded them onto their site. It wasn't like I was looking in a drawer. I was like, oh, <laughs> here are the original oh maps. God, I was trying to big you up there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, these are by Shigeru Miyamoto mm-hmm. and they're actual drawings of the Zelda levels. But like a lot of these games and a lot of early games, they were all built on maps and grids. Yeah, and hand-drawn on paper. Yeah. He, he's literally done the whole game so there's a, a nice little youtube video where they zoom out and it's every single level or section in the zelda world and it's all hand drawn on paper and this is really cool because i think you know kids if you're talking about computer game design and stuff you can just do it on paper you can get it all started we've had quite a lot of guests that have talked about how some of their games have been pen and paper games how some of the early games have just been created from mazes or places they had in their heads i mean even i remember like you know when i learned programming when i was a kid you know and i tried to pick it up even back then you know they'd always encourage you to write it down with a pen and paper you know write your listings out beforehand before you did it and if you ever can do any graphics again it was like this it was all just graph paper yeah and it, and it seems so hard as well you know when people are like oh i want to get into the world of programming i want to do this but if you sit down with graph paper and you start yeah. forming your ideas you can actually get somewhere pretty quick essentially all pixels are is building blocks isn't it so yeah totally so this is just fantastic to see it's great that nintendo saved all these as well um and didn't just you know they actually realize that these are going to be important in the future and like even looking at these they look like they colored in with a pencil and stuff <laughs> yeah yeah like, yeah you know, you know he's gone he's gone at it with a felt yeah. tip or something gone at the lines a bit in some areas yeah <laughs> yeah it's really good though yeah, well, this, this website you found here kotaku.com um they've actually they've got some like kind of anim gifs where it shows you the actual map in the game and then goes back to his um his graph paper yeah like layered over at the uh original one and then the game version on top the top comment on this article 
I totally agree with as well. This better imply a Zelda Maker game is in the works. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> you were the Super Mario Maker on the Wii U. Have you played that? Uh, no, but I've seen some absolutely nuts levels. Yeah. Like, you know, firing across and then headbutting things. It looks mad. Well, I got it ages ago when it came out and I didn't like open the box for about six months. Probably only tried it out just before Christmas. But yeah, it's really loads of fun to be able to design your own levels. And even like I was sitting there with my girlfriend, you know, get her to look away for five minutes while I make the most insane map and put all these nasty little like traps and all that in there as well. Like, go on, look back and look Go on, you can do it, darling. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, it'd be great to see more stuff like this. I imagine, like you said, a lot of these early games were made using this, you know, pen and paper method. So it'd be good to see, like, you know, Mario and stuff, the original designs of that. So hopefully they'll get around to uploading a few more of those. We'll put those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, shoot-em-up games were always a lot of fun back in the old days. Oh, totally. I remember going to the seaside playing stuff like um, Gallagher, used to be my local one, R-Type, games like that as well. Uh, Xenon, Xenon 2 on the Amiga, they were loads of fun. There's even, do you remember um, Dulux Gallagher on the Amiga? Dulux Gallagher, I'm not not sure. You see, I wasn't that much of a shooter at man, but I do remember one really good game, which was called Banshee, which was later on in the CD32, but also Swiv as well, if you remember that. that Yeah, Swiv, loads of fun. Um, there are always, I mean, I used to destroy a lot of joysticks playing shoot 'em up games because you get frustrated that you're like, oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> but there is one actually that's, um, it was an arcade game and it actually came out on the Atari Jaguar. And this is a game that's called Raiden. Don't know if you've heard of this before. I mean, it came out on the Jag in probably about 94, 95. And it was really a late 80s arcade game. So it didn't look very impressive on the Jag, but it was loads of fun. I love the intro music on it as well. Check this out. This is the intro music to uh, Raiden on the Atari Jaguar. Very, very funky. Ready? Nod your head. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So this game was loads of fun. Um, There was actually an Amiga version of this that never got released. So they never brought it out on that platform, bizarrely. But, this might not please Amiga fans, it is coming out on the uh, Amiga's old arch-rival, the Atari ST, at long last. So this game, it came out on a few Atari platforms, including the Falcon, um, but who's got one of them? The Atari Lynx as well had a version of it. It came out on DOS and the PC Engine, even a PlayStation version of it. I think they released it on PSN about two or three years ago. Wow. Um, but now, the team at Atari Crypt are actually doing a port for the Atari STE. Now, they've actually done a little work-in-progress video, and it looks amazing, actually. Because the Atari STE, I don't know how much you know about the ST, but that was kind of the enhanced model. So... When they first introduced the ST, that was yeah. before the Amiga, wasn't it? Just and, before, yeah. Yeah, and then later on, the STE was like an attempt to try to fight the faster machines, wasn't it? Yeah. It was an, E was the enhanced. Yeah, well, I think it? it had like hardware scrolling and stuff, and it had like uh, you know could do like dual playfields, and it had better sound chip and stuff in okay. there as well if you wanted yeah. to use it. Uh, but they reckon in this game though, um, they're going to hardware scrolling is going to be used for the entire screen. Uh, DMA for the playback of authentic arcade music, the oh, nice. glitter to you collect, you do all the larger sprites. Um, also, they're going to use like proper sound effects as well, not that you know kind of the one that sounds like the Spectrum that chip that the Atari ST's got. So. You know, there wasn't all that many games done for the STE specifically, but, you know, I think it's cool that they're actually doing an enhanced Atari game. And looking at the gameplay on this, actually, it doesn't look all that far behind the Jaguar. Nice. So it looks very, (laughs) very smooth. So it's good. I mean, you know, the Atari ST, it's always a platform we've kind of, you know, poked a bit of fun at because we we used to be Amiga heads back in the day. But I actually got an Atari ST about, well, an STE model, actually, about two years ago. So I'm quite interested in the platform now, and I'll, I'll definitely give this a download when it comes out. It does look quite sexy. I love the slanty keys and stuff like that. Um, I've just not had enough Atari experience. I really need to get an ST and start playing with one. What really interests me is the Falcons. Yeah. And if you had like a, 
060 in there and a big fat graphics card and you pushed it far beyond what Atari should do. You know? Well, you've just sold your house, haven't you? I yeah. All the money you got off your house could probably get you that. That's it. <laughs> so I'd love a Falcon as well, but I mean, even like stock ones on eBay go for about 600 quid. Oh, nothing. yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen, you know, the 030 ones and they're like, yeah. oh, God, 700. Yeah. There is some guy on YouTube and he can't, he's got like a... I'll pop it in, I'll show this so I can find this video again. There's like a Falcon, he's got it expanded, he's, he's playing MP3s on it, and he's got like, you know, 720p Well, even display. the 030 would play video at, you know, beautiful speed. Compared to the Amiga, it would kill it, you know, on the video playback. Yeah, the Falcon, good. I mean, it was, you know, a machine that kind of came around. I remember reading at the time, there's all the comparisons with the Amiga 1200. Mm. And really on paper, you know, the, the Falcon kind of destroyed it, didn't it, in many ways. But again, I mean, it was just... Atari at that stage had decided they were getting out of computers, you know, they got back into consoles, didn't they, again? And uh, there wasn't really all that much stuff made for the Falcon, you know, no, to take advantage no, of it. Wasn't. But apparently it's got a pretty decent homebrew, you know, development that yeah, I've seen yeah. going on now. So one day I'll get one. Of course, you know, if anyone's listening and got one in the cupboard that they're not using and uh, <laughs> would like to make a donation, that is, uh, is always appreciated. <laughs> it won't go in the what, bin. What? We won't chuck it out the window. <laughs> we'll respect it and uh, clean it up. <laughs> uh, the MSX, now that's a pretty interesting platform. Yeah, the MSX. Um, it, it, it's... Cassette loading, like yeah. a lot of machines were, but um, there's been a lot of people recently that have been using old iPods and stuff to play stuff through the spectrum. So it would be a tape emulator, kind of. Uh, they use the tape image file, which is a dot .cas, okay. which is the cassette image. That plays audio then? It's an audio yeah, file yeah. Like so it. a lot of people would just get the dot .cas file, play it through an iPod, and it would work well on the spectrum. You know, you just type load. Yeah. Or on the C64, but it's a bit more complex with the MSX. Okay. So the MSX has to kind of scan the tape image before it, the audio is played to find like certain tracks that are on it. Oh, so it doesn't do it in real time then? It kind of works. No, no, it okay. scans it before, but they've actually got this happening now. So this is uh, with a new app for Android, which is called MSX to CAS. And. It takes a little while to load stuff, but, you know, it's it's a lot faster than the actual tape still. And there's an example of a guy, you know, um, loading the MSX version of Flappy Bird on this. Wow, and okay. <laughs> the app's pretty cool. It's like on an Android phone, and you actually have the tape there, and you press play, and you see, like, the heads going on the tape, like the actual the cassette's playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you do, you know. <laughs> That's cool, though, because, I mean, there is something... I'm looking at a video here, and you've got, like, the flashy borders and stuff, you know, and that noise. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> but there is something very nostalgic about it, though, isn't there? Totally. And I actually got... I mean, I was watching um, a good friend, Paul is the best, 3 UK on oh, YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we met Paul at a couple of shows, haven't we? And he's, a, you know, he's a big Spectrum fan. And he actually got this, um, this little tape off eBay that he uses. So what it is... And I've been trying this, actually, recently, without any success, unfortunately. But it's uh, a little cassette tape that you buy off eBay. Mm. And instead of having tape inside, there's a magnetic head, but you put an SD card in the top. Okay, wow. Yeah, so then you can put it into your player, and you get a little remote control with it, and you just press play on the remote control, then it actually feeds MP3 files off the SD card through the tape head. Is that for, like, car radios and stuff? That Oh, that's really smart, man. But he's been using it on his Spectrum. Ah. You know, putting, like, again translating um, cassette tapes from, you know, uh, computers into WAV files, you know, audio files. That's really cool. Paul, you need to let us know how you're doing this. Well, I mean, he's got a video tutorial on it, and I haven't got a Spectrum. I tried it on the Commodore 64. The problem is, you've got to kind of, of course, 
you've got to get the wabs the right volume. Mm. And apparently the Spectrum's not that fussy with how loud they are, but the Commodore 64 is very specific. They've got to be a certain volume. And unfortunately, the C64 doesn't play that, you know, that squawky noise yeah. when you hear it. It kind of mutes it, so you don't know how loud it, it is. It's just <laughs> experimentation. So you're just with the kind volume. of playing with the volume knob. Yeah, well, is and there it? isn't even a volume knob on the Commodore 64's data set. So you just got to get the WAV files to the right volume before you put them on your oh SD my card. God, so okay, yeah. I was expert for about half an hour on the weekend. I thought I've had enough. But <laughs> if I do crack it, though, on the Commodore 64. Yeah, I'll, that sounds really interesting. Like, I never thought of that. A little cassette with an SD card. Yeah. What a smart idea. Well, it was like 15 quid off eBay. Wow. So, especially if you've got a Spectrum or, you know, a machine where you can actually hear the audio through and it isn't as fussy with the levels and stuff like that, but you put like a 32 gigabyte SD card in there, you know, as WAV files, you can get pretty much every cassette tape game ever. Yeah, yeah just load it, go. MP3s or, or whatever, yeah. So, like I said, there is something, you know, I've got an SD2 IEC and playing, you know, C64 games off SD card and that. It's all right, but sometimes you do just want to, for the full, authentic, nostalgic experience, you want to sit there for 15 minutes and watch the, watch the borders flicker. <laughs> watch your tea brews. <laughs> Eight-year-old me is like, what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you have got an MSX, it's a pretty interesting little product. We did actually meet the guys from the um, MSX UK users group, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, um, Play. Yeah, wasn't Manchester. It? Yeah, Play Manchester, and they're really nice guys. We should get some MSX people on the show, I think. Well, I think, and I was reading the other day, apparently they sold about 7 million in Japan, different oh. variants of the MSX. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was around until 1995 because it was like a hardware spec. There's the MSX1, the MSX2, later on that came with discs and all that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, it's not really a machine I've ever had much experience of. No, it'd be good to learn some stuff about it, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you have got an MSX, you know, let us know what's cool. Yeah. What should we look out for? Now, the ZX Spectrum is obviously, you know, getting back to... Back to Britain here. That was a big machine over here, wasn't it? Oh, massive, yeah. The specky, as it's known. Yeah, especially, you know, again, talking nostalgic, that, you know, that, that sound effect that I played a moment ago, that's from the Spectrum. That rubber keyboard and all that. I never had one, but even looking at it, I'm like, there is something very nostalgic about the Spectrum. I used to go around my friend's house in Hull, and um, he would have, like, some really funny games. How to be a complete bastard yeah, was yeah. one on the Spectrum <laughs> and uh, Escape from Cold Hits and stuff. And we used to play that. And, uh, you know, I really love those games because even though the graphics weren't the hottest at the time, this was like 16-bit period, Yeah, they had so much personality, so much fun in them. My friend Martin had one. He had a, it was one of the, uh, you know, the plus twos with the built-in tape deck. Yeah. Yeah, one of those. But yeah, you, you probably, again, it was like probably 92 or something. He had it. And we go in his house and like, you know, just I, giggle. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. about that. But actually, I remember staying over one night and we were playing a load of Spectrum games. And they were loads of fun, you know. Yeah, Again, yeah. the graphics, I mean, it's all those kind of really bright kind of primary colours, isn't it? And, and, and bleeding everywhere and stuff. Neons it? and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? But there is actually, um, if you keep up with the Spectrum scene, there's a guy called um, Richard Langford. Now, he runs a, a little group called Langford Productions. And what he does, he actually remakes Spectrum classics on the PC, on the modern day PC. Oh, cool. So he's done stuff like um, The Hunch, um, Cookie, Highway Encounter, these are all, you know, classic Spectrum games from back in the day. He upgrades him, gives him a little bit of a more modern look for the PC. And what he's actually working on now is a brand new game for the PC that takes a lot of inspiration from old Spectrum games. And <laughs> this game is called Project ZX. So I'm going to tell you the goal of this game now. So what you have to do is you have to get through 100 levels and defeat Clive Sinclair. He's, he's a main <laughs> boss in this game, all right? Because he's got he an driving C five. <laughs> I don't, I don't ever see the screenshot of that, but I hope he is. <laughs> so the idea is you've got to defeat him over an outrageous scheme to get the Spectrum remembered only as an educational computer. <laughs> so he didn't like games, did Clive? Did he? No, no, no. So uh, you've got to go through and make sure that everyone remembers the Spectrum for games. 
And what it is, I mean, he's actually got loads, if you go through this game, the screens and characters from other Spectrum games in here. Yeah, I'm noticing that there's, it's great because there's loads of different sprites from everything. So there's kind of, you know, asteroid ships. Yeah. And then there's dudes from like Manic Miner. There's like castles, there's, yeah, you know, everything in there, so, yeah. all in one game. I think, you know, for anyone that loved the Spectrum, this game is going to be so much fun, isn't it? Just going through and be like, oh my God, that's from whatever game, you know what I mean? And the fact you've got to, <laughs> you've got to defeat Sir Clive, come on. Oh, that's genius. And I love the idea about educational games. <laughs> that's so smart. Uh, now, you only announced this in the last couple of weeks, but apparently it's going to be out very, very soon. So um, as a free download, we'll pop that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And like I said, it's for a modern PC, so should just be able to boot it up. Maybe not on Linux, unfortunately, Ravi. Oh, no. <laughs> Try it in wine. I'll get Windows 10 back yeah. on. <laughs> now, this is something we thought we'd never be saying on this show. Do you ever watch Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or read the books? Or Obsessed as a child. Absolutely obsessed. I used to um, listen to the BBC radio plays, mm-hmm. um, read the book. Um, and the TV series in the 80s? had my own... Babelfish translator stuff, and you know, it's just totally in it. TV series got it all still ripped on, uh, you know, my hard drive. Yeah, totally I, love it. I like the adventure game as well, Text Adventure, but that was like probably the hardest text adventure I've ever played. Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it was totally random as well. And yeah, it'd be like, yeah, you brush your teeth, or unfortunately, the house has fallen down. You shouldn't have done that, you know, <laughs> it's like all over. But apparently, Deep Thought from Hitchhikers can now be built in yes. real life. Yeah, so this is, um, quantum computing which we've always kind of talked about um when i was a kid i'd heard a lot about quantum computing and this is a a computer at the kind of level of electrons you know it's a a, a computer that is supposed to operate at around a hundred thousand times faster than uh our usual ones at the moment okay and uh and the fastest but yeah the we've got now. and okay. this concept was always kind of out there Uh, You know, theoretically, they could make this quantum computer. But now, British scientists have actually started to develop this. So they reckon that this machine might be able to uh, give us the meaning of life. Yeah, well, they're saying, you know, um, it will harness the effects influencing the nature of reality in a subatomic level and have the potential to unravel the deepest cosmological mysteries create life-saving medicines, transform weather forecasting, and take encryption to new levels. And uh, what's even more insane about this story is, um, it's a team at the University of Sussex that reckon, you know, reckon this is theoretically possible, but they reckon they're going to have a proof-of-concept early prototype within two years. It's crazy. Yeah, so, you know, computing is going to get a lot faster, and these are going to be supercomputers, and uh, it's absolutely crazy because if you go into the advanced stuff, I'm not really going to go on it on this podcast because mm. you'll probably get bored. But um, research this, guys, because some of the stuff that they're doing is mad. <laughs> well, we already know the meaning of life, though. 42, of course. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Might as well quit now. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what games are going to run on this thing, though. You look at like, uh, in, like a cray supercomputer from like the 70s or 80s that you see in like these old you know museums and stuff now. One day, you know, you're going to have the power of this on your watch or your phone or something yeah, probably in yeah. 30 years. It's, it's like, going to be mad. Yeah, so the, the future is exciting. Yeah, and very fast yeah. <laughs> approaching. We talk about the past, but we like the future too. So thank you for checking out episode number 58 of the Retro Hour podcast. We will be out again next Friday, available from all your favourite podcast clients, your favourite 
streamers, your favourite YouTube channel, whatever. All over the shop. Exactly. So wherever you do listen to the show, uh, we appreciate you listening. And please do leave a little review on your platform of choice. We got our first one on Stitcher a while back, didn't we? Yeah, we need another one to <laughs> join it and, you know, make it not feel so lonely. Yeah. Balanced review. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean we want a negative one, just saying. <laughs> so thank you for checking out this week's show, guys. We'll be out again next week. And now let's get into this week's special guest on the Retro Hour, the guy behind games like Earthworm Jim, he's worked for Probe Software, Disney games on the Mega Drive. This guy's so interesting. Nick Brutti. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Nick Bruti. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's great. I enjoy sort of going back and dealing with the old retro days. Uh, I've noticed it seems to have come up more and more in the past couple of years. Um, so it's uh, helping me remember these things. <laughs> it's crazy how the interest has suddenly come back so much then, isn't it? Yeah, especially on the spectrum. I think, uh, is Sam Dyer a friend of your guys? Yes, he is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he sent me, uh, I think he's see the one who sent me that book. Out that they had a ZX Spectrum art book. Yeah, it's very good, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's excellent. Yeah. So it's uh, it's fantastic to see that. Well, Nick, let's um, let's start your story right from the beginning. Then that's always a good place to start. Um, okay. What was, what was your first ever experience with the computer? Then where did it all begin? I think it was at the Link uh, Z80 research machine. Uh, it was out at high school. Um, I wasn't actually allowed in the class. I was uh, too young. The computers were only just turning up into schools at that point. Um, but I got to sort of sneak in and sort of mess around at uh, some point. I had no idea what was going on, and I just thought, oh, I've just got to get involved in this somehow. It just seems so much more exciting than anything at school at that time. Um, and it took about another sort of year or two before I managed to get hold of a, a ZX Spectrum, and that was uh, just a great adventure. So I had no idea where I was going with it. There really wasn't many books about it, uh, not that I had any money to buy books. So it was just kind of reverse engineering your way into it and just playing around. And I would, like, get hold of some uh, programming magazine magazines and just look what was in there and just try to work out what it was what did it all mean so it was a it was a great adventure you know and i think that was um probably my my favorite time was actually there at the very beginning I mean, i had i enjoy doing a lot of creative stuff but that particular period of time on the spectrum when no one knew anything mm-hmm. um it was just great deal of fun well the spectrum really you know birthed the computer industry really in this country didn't it yeah i, I think just because the machine was so accessible you know it's so simple um, even the Commodore was like a little step up in difficulty um, with the hardware. But Spectrum was just like a blank slate, you know. So the first thing I started to do was just poke data into anywhere in memory and just to see what would happen, you know. And then I wrote a little program that would actually just display memory to the screen. And, you know, and I'd just like scroll through the whole of, whole of RAM and then I'd just see where this part of memory would speed up the whole machine, this part of memory would slow it down, and then I come across the system variables and so i could see it there you know it was initially what it all meant but you can actually just access it you know which you can't even really do today with today's machines and did you have the ram ram expansion and all that the the wobbly one on the back <laughs> eventually <laughs> once i started professionally um but initially it was just uh just a trusty spectrum and a, and a tape cassette the unreliable tape cassette which i lost a lot of work <laughs> using and the micro drives of course uh, did you have a passion for art and design and stuff when you were a kid? Uh, I did, um, but I wasn't taking it very seriously. Um, we, I was at, still high school when a friend of mine, David Quinn, um, uh, we were both into Spectrum together, and he was like, I'm going to try and get a job making games. And I was like, you're, you're kidding, because we were like 15 at the time. And, and there was no industry, just a, a sort of few game companies out there. 
And so he bought a book on sprite programming and um, he just kind of pretty much ripped off the routines and put them in there. And then he needed some art. So I was like, well, you know, I'll do some art for you. And I did some animations and uh, a few sort of demos for him. And he went for this interview and I couldn't believe it. And he, he got the job, you know, and went to work for this company called Softstone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it was like a few months later, he called me up and it was like, you know what, you should you should just come down here because they need some art. And they kind of liked what you did in the demo. And uh, so it wasn't something I was particularly looking at. Um, I was just interested in computers in general, but art was the way I actually got in. And how were you doing out then? Was it all machine code or basic or what were you doing? Uh, a bit of both. Like machine code was a mystery. <laughs> you know, I was like, what was this thing? Um and so I started, I just started to learn to do some coding, some assembly, when I, when I got pulled into the art side more and the art and design. And, you know, I, I still do some coding now. In fact, I've, I've sort of picked it up recently, um, especially with like Unity and Unreal and you can use C Sharp and stuff like that. It's pretty easy. Um, but back then, the art stuff took over so quickly that I kind of dropped the programming side of it. And, you know, I think I'm an okay programmer at best anyway, so uh, I make much faster progress developing games and art and design. And what did your parents think at this time then of your, uh, your, your newfound interest in computers? I had very odd parents uh, in that they weren't too concerned about much. I think my dad sort of spent about 10 minutes thinking about it because I, I left school at 15 to go and pursue this. Yeah. Um, and, and at the time in the UK, there was like, I don't know, three, four million people unemployed and there was a recession, and so no one knew what was going on. And so the fact that I could get work doing anything <laughs> was sort of impressive for them. Uh, they had no idea. I don't think my dad ever knew exactly quite what I was doing. He was just that generation uh, too far to really understand computers. Um, but they were happy for me. Uh, what was the first time you kind of came home with a paycheck uh, from your art in a game? Well, that actually, I left home uh, to go uh, to work at this company called uh, Softstone, which was down in Brighton, and my dad was living in London at the time. So I just moved away, and uh, my, my friend David Quinn, who went to join his company, uh, I just went and crashed in his bedroom for about a few months um, <laughs> until I, I got a sort of regular employment down there and got my own place. So my first paychecks I had by myself, um, and I had absolutely no discipline. And of course, me and my friends were just like, yay, someone's paying us. So we just went out and spent all our money, and then sort of starred for a few weeks until we could get paid again. We sort of had to learn the hard way how to sort of manage that. So you, you all see these stories of like the early 80s and, you know, 15-year-old kids getting paid millions of pounds, but it wasn't like that for everybody. No, no. I mean, when I turned up at this company, um, my friend just, and it was just, you know, it's a small, about like 12, 13 people and uh, just a couple of rooms uh, in this building. And I don't, my friend didn't really set me up with an interview. I just sort of turned up and he introduced me to a few people. And I, I kind of sat down at a station and I, I showed a few sort of demos and people thought, well, that was nice. And they were working on a couple of games. And one of them was uh, the original V TV show. Oh, yeah. Um, back in the 80s. And so I just sort of start, started building some art for it. And then they started taking it and using it. And this went on for a couple of weeks until eventually the owner came over to me. And he called me into the office, and I thought, oh, you know, I've been had. <laughs> I'm just sort of hanging out at his office. Um, and he goes, well, I guess I should start paying you something, you know. And I was like, oh, great, I've got a job. 
Uh, but it was something like 50 quid a week mm-hmm. or something to start with, you know, all off the record type of thing. So, um, yeah, not not the millions. <laughs> Certainly not the start there, but it, is, it felt like it at the time to a 15-year-old. It must have been a pretty proud moment, though, when you saw your artwork in a, you know, fully released commercial game for the first time. Do you remember which one it was? It was V was the first one that, that was released. Um, and, yeah, it felt fantastic. Um, I mean, I even enjoyed the TV show back then. Uh, uh, but I remember going into one of our news agents and, like, you know, going through all the magazine racks and finding it in Crash and uh, and seeing I got, a, you know, a pretty decent review for the art. And so I was just ecstatic, you know. Um, but there wasn't, you know, it's not like now where everything's online, there's so much coverage. There was very little coverage back then. So... You didn't spend a lot of time going over that. You pretty much were just on to the next project. And uh, when we're talking about the art, we're talking about kind of big, fancy colour title screens and kind of small sprites and uh, stuff like this. Yeah, uh, backgrounds, animated sprites, um, loading screens, uh, all those things. I pretty much did everything. Well, going from, you know, trying to do, obviously, V was, um, you know, quite a high-tech TV show in its day, you know, the special effects and stuff like that. Translating that to an 8-bit computer system, was that was that quite a challenge? Uh, so, yes and no, because I didn't have anything to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and graphics were pretty basic back then. So anything that looked half decent, you know, was <laughs> reviewed very, very well. Um, so there wasn't a lot of competition. I, I think at the time the... There's one other guy there doing some art, and I think he was like a postman, right. <laughs> so like doing this part time. So you know, there wasn't really an art. There's no art departments. There was no review. No one looking over your shoulder or anything. You just kind of did what you did, and and, and no one really sort of complained. Everyone was just sort of happy with it. Um, so the process itself was kind of easy for me because I just did exactly what I wanted, um, and they just gave me like the technical specification the limitations how many characters i could have you know how much memory i have and then it was pretty much up to me what i put in there um and i i didn't really think about it uh from a sort of critical standpoint or anyone really reviewing it at the time i was just enjoying myself you know if i'd thought about it too much it probably would have you know slowed me down a bit <laughs> and a lot of these games were kind of big ips at the time as well like uh, captain planet and uh, teenage mutant ninja turtles oh hero turtles yeah okay yeah, for sure. I mean, that that came uh, those came about the sort of following year when I started working at Pro Software. Um, I was, I think, one of the first artists, or maybe the first artist they had there. And uh, and so Pro, uh, you know, Fergus was a very popular guy and knew all the publishers around. So we tended to pick up all the the big licenses. Um, so that was kind of fun. You know, I get to work on a bunch of uh, sort of fun arcade IPs and uh, for the arcade IPs and then the TV shows. Because um, we would in the office, and we usually get them in that kind of briefcase. So you could take them home, just plug them into your TV. Oh wow! Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. So that was really the perks. Was you actually we were all waiting to see who could get the arcade, you know, and take it home with them. <laughs> it took about ten years for the rest of us to be able to play uh, or get anything near an arcade in in our home, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Although I mean, I remember one time I was working on a game called Quartet, which mm. is a four-player thing. And there wasn't enough room in the office for it, so they actually delivered it to my home. And this thing was a beast, you know, it took up half my bedroom. Well, you know, back then when, you know, you mentioned like IPs, like TV shows and arcade, I mean, did, did the actual like copyright holders or the licensees, did they have much involvement back then? Did they give you kind of anything to work from or was it you pretty much left to your own devices? Oh, completely left to our own devices. It's, when I think back now, it's kind of 
funny, you know. When, and sometimes when p- people interview me and they, they will ask about the review process, there was none, you know. Uh, either we were just doing a great job first time out of the box uh, or people you know, just weren't, weren't paying that much attention. So I, I don't think I really ever had, I'm trying to recall, like di- direct reviews or co- conversations with the publishers themselves. Um, pretty much, uh, you know, mo- most of the time I was working with Dave Perry, so we would just work and just deliver our stuff to Probe and, and they were happy and we never really heard about it. Um, how did you actually meet Fergus McGovern then and get working with Dave Perry? After about a year, Softstone collapsed, um, and Dave went uh, back up to London, and he got a job working at Probe. Um, he's working on some horse racing game, um, and uh, and again, as usual, he called me up and went, "Hey, they need some art for this horse racing game. Do you want to come in and do it?" And I'm like, "Sure." But in the meantime, um, I was kind of working uh, at home on a sort of my own project, which turned out to be Trantor. I was kind of a bit tired of all the sort of restrictions on memory, and I thought, you know what, I'll just do a little budget game. Uh, it won't be very big, and I'll just blow all the memory on art, and I would give myself a decently sized sprite for a change. And so I was working on this when I went into Probe, and uh, and so Fergus uh, saw that, and he was like, "Let's make that into a full price game." Um, so I went quickly from working on these sort of conversions to just working on the original Trantor game. And my friend David uh, Quinn was doing a Spectrum version, and and you know at the time. Uh, you know, scrolling was pretty difficult on those machines. Um, the Spectrum could get away with it a bit. The Amstrad was a little slower, and so um, with a heavier screen uh, footprint. And so we were like, "How are we going to do this on the Amstrad?" I'd met David. I was working at was it Microgen back then? Um, he just left Microgen, and so we arranged a meeting for us and uh, to do the Amstrad version. And he came in and he saw what we had, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I think I can get this going." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, sure." And he went away, and just within a couple of days, maybe maybe it's about a week, went to follow up, see what he had. And not only did he have the game up and running, it was faster than the Spectrum. Uh, he was he had pretty much almost everything we had in the Spectrum running at that point. And I was just blown away. And I'm like, I'm going to work with this guy. And he liked what I was doing. And so we, we you know, we had a good sort of shorthand language with each other and, and uh, just worked uh, as a really good partnership. So he was an impressive coder from kind of day one when you met him. Yeah, he was just, he was very fast, and the other thing that he was uh, uh, was always great at was really empowering you. You know, so if he could see that you could bring something to the game, he would work out how to do that, make that easier for you. So uh, he was always great for making tools and uh, just finding new ways. And, and we both kind of um, had a, a similar approach about how we went about things. And, and we both liked to do things very, very quickly. We didn't get caught up on, on much. Um, and so we had a very, very productive, I guess, three or four years there. We pumped out quite a few Spectrum and Amstrad games and, uh, and, a, and a few 16-bit stuff as well. How did you uh, feel about the Amstrad as well? Because you had to do a lot of conversions on there as well. Uh, yeah, it was never my favourite. Um, uh, just the big, fat, chunky pixel mode. Um, you know, on the Commodore, the monitors kind of softened that look a little. But on the Am- those Amstrad monitors, everything was pretty sharp and harsh, and the colours were harsh. So it's very hard to blend things, even though you had more colours. So I always preferred doing stuff on the Spectrum for the resolution. Um, and I was always hoping at some point on the Amstrad we could use that four-colour mode. Um, which gave you the higher resolution. Uh, but most of the games that we did were just more suited to, to the sort of double-pixel fat mode. Um, so it, it was different, um, and, and it was fine. Uh, because Dave did such a good job with the Amstrad, that made the experience better. 
Um, but overall, I, I still I preferred working on the Spectrum. Well, the Amstrad was quite a powerful machine, though. I think, you know, a lot of the time it got Spectrum ports, but you mentioned that, you know, the four-color high-res mode, which for its time was very impressive, wasn't it? It was, you know, and that's when you saw, especially isometric games, sort of really benefited from that. But, yeah, unfortunately, it tended to get more ports than anything else, uh, just probably at the, the sort of cycle when it was sort of becoming popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Spectrum still led the way. And, and typically when we're on development, we would lead on the Spectrum first. Although, because uh, uh, Dave was so quick, you know, the Amstrad was pretty much neck and neck with it, actually, during our development. Well, obviously, you're working on, you know, the, the 8-bit machines. And when that kind of started to slow down, I mean, did you work much on 16-bit computers or was it more consoles that you went straight into? We were still finding plenty of work on the Spectrum, but, you know, recognizing that we were kind of want to shift away. I mean, Amiga and ST were out. And we did one game uh, called Supremacy mm. in the UK. I think it's called Overlord in, in the States. Um, and it was, uh, you know, we'd, I can't remember which game we'd seen. We'd seen some sort of space strategy game that was based on a random moon thing. And we kind of just got intrigued by it and we thought, let's just do our own version of that. So we were still doing Spectrum Amstrad games where we started this uh, Amiga title. And it took about somewhere between eight months to a year or something on it. We did a bunch, I say, we did, still did like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Tintin on the Moon during this. It sort of actually helped fund it. And uh, so we had this one game that was completely different from everything else we had made, uh, this space strategy, military uh, style game. Mm. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I, I wish I could have spent more time in the Amiga, but the market just wasn't really there. And at that point, the next thing that really was coming up was a Genesis for us. Um, and we were offered uh, the Terminator, yeah. um, which obviously, you know, back then, which I can't remember exactly what year it was, probably 90 or something like that. Um, you know, that was very exciting. I was a huge James Cameron fan, loved the Terminator. You know, so when they said, you want to do that, we're like, yeah. Um, and it was only afterwards that we realized that they weren't going to let us uh, play Arnold. In fact, you couldn't actually have Arnold in it <laughs> or his likeness. He owned his own likeness. and So it had to, all those sort of copyright issues to deal with. And, uh, and then they were like, you can only be, there can only be one Terminator, you know, and you're not allowed to shoot the bad guys or the good guys or the cops or anything like that. So we were kind of like really handcuffed in what we were allowed to do. And so it was an interesting uh, game. We ended up just all, you know, breaking the rules a little bit. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to actually do in the game. But that was our first, yeah, Genesis game. I remember it was pretty tricky developing for it because all the, the initial documentation was all sort of translated um, from Japanese and a lot of stuff was just missing and a lot of it was broken English. So uh, it was tricky. It was tricky to work <laughs> out. A lot of the games were around that time, the Japanese imports. They <laughs> weren't translated very well either, were they? <laughs> yeah, I know. So it was interesting, but it's still exciting because it was, you know, uh, it was it was hardware. It was fast, you know. It was powerful for the time. You know, Sonic had just come out, and that was pretty amazing. Well, the Terminator game you did was that just before the sequel came out? Then, uh, yes, I think mm-hmm. it. I, I can't quite remember the exact year. I think it was before the sequel. Mm. I remember just uh, uh, back then, um, and this is before we had, you know, uh, scanners and stuff like this, where you'd sort of import art. Um, so our producer came over, a guy called Neil Young, and, uh, and so we had him go out into the backyard and put on a raincoat and gave him a plunger, and then I recorded him on video, and he used my, my reference footage for, for Reese. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff we did. So I had this, like, grainy sort of black-and-white image that I was, like, drawing from, um, and it sort of came out okay. 
<laughs> and sounds, pretty pretty you know, low tech, low tech stuff. <laughs> exactly. Looking back at that, that must seem so innocent compared to what came along years after it. You know, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I imagine around that time, you mentioned that you know you had all these like kind of requirements on doing that game. Was that when kind of you know big companies realised that the video games industry was going to uh, you know be a big thing and actually they kind of dictated some of the rules to you then? Well, I thought that was going to be the case because we were, we were given these rules, but. It wasn't really because there was someone that the publisher really sort of paying attention. I think the rules were just passed down to them from the film companies. And so rather than being sort of publisher restrictions, it was really the Hollywood side of things. So we still didn't get any overview. You know, I expected, you know, people knocking on our door and, and maybe complaining about things. Because once we started to sort of break the rules a little bit, you know, I thought, oh, what's going to happen when we send this build off? But nothing ever happened. You know, actually, even further than that, uh, I did a game uh, Alien 3 on the Super Nintendo. And uh, and this was before we saw the movie. The movie was still being made. And I was working with Nick Jones, um, who later joined us at Shiny for Earthworm Jim. And it was his first SNES game. And we were both excited. I was a huge Aliens fan, of course. And they sent us a script. And so we're reading the script. And I was, you know, my heart was sinking as I was reading the script. But then I thought, I don't know anything about movie scripts. Maybe it's great. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we're working away, making this game. And uh, when, when they said, you know, there's, uh, Ripley's going to die in it. Um, there's only one alien. You know, she's going to have her head shaved. It's going to be a fairly depressing affair. And uh, so we were worried about that. And then we got to see a sneak peek of the movie but as we were about midway through development. And we saw it and we're like, oh, crap. You know, and we came out and we're like, this is, well, what can we do? How are we going to make some fun games? So we decided to ignore all the rules they gave us and just have flamethrowers and all the weapons she wants and as many aliens as we want. We basically made aliens, but just with a backdrop of Alien 3. So I thought we might get kicked back from that at least, but but no one no one said a thing. So Well, that, that game as well, okay. I mean, it was, it was such a fun platformer to play. Quite hard, but I remember the graphics on it, you know, the, the art design. It was very kind of cyberpunk and a lot of these kind of, you know, and that kind of dark colours and stuff as well. It was quite a unique look for its time. Uh, that was, you know, um, well, I'd done Supremacy on the Amiga. Uh, you know, I really didn't know much about art, and you didn't need to do it on the 8-bit days. And so when I went to the Alien 3 and the SNES, and all of a sudden they had this nice palette available to me, I'm like, oh, I, I better actually learn how to do some of this stuff. So uh, that was a, a bit of an education for me. You know, I... I my art has improved as the machines improved, and I needed to improve with it. Um, so my, my focus became actually more on art as it, as it went through, even though I, I really actually spend uh, as much of my time in design, um, but I tend to be known more for my art. But it's surprising to me because it's, it wasn't necessarily my primary focus. Well, the game that absolutely blew my mind was uh, Disney's Aladdin. Yeah, that was um, an awesome opportunity that came up. Um, so uh, Virgin came knocking. Uh, I think uh, before Alien 3, Dave, we just finished up on, on Terminator. They were looking for programmers and they were going to bring everyone to the States. And so Dave took the opportunity. And so he was out there about a year before me while I was doing Alien 3. And then I came out. And he had done a bunch of games there already, uh, Cool Spot and Global Gladiators. Um, so he'd, like, he'd converted his engine up to 6 bit and then added more more refinements to it. Um, so I knew the tech really, really well. And I think uh, Capcom were doing the Super Nintendo version uh, of Aladdin. And someone else, I can't remember who was doing the Genesis version. There was someone else doing it, but it didn't work out so well. And so it was kind of, a, they were looking for someone to sort of take over that project. And I think they'd you know, seen Dave's previous games and, and thought, can you guys do this in the time left available? 
And so the team were put together and were like, yes, we can do this. Because uh, we were just excited by the idea. And Disney were kind of on that upswing, you know, mm-hmm. from Little Mermaid, Aladdin, then went on to Lion King. Um, so it was kind of an exciting time. We knew, and Ron Williams was huge. And they've had his new tech, which allowed us to have the animation frames, um, basically have frames of, of unusual shapes and sizes, which allowed us to take the, the Disney scans and bring those in. Um, and then we had amazing animators uh, at Virgin um, to bring that data in and clean it up uh, so it didn't look like pixels anymore, but felt more like lines. Um, so, yeah, it was an amazing uh, period of time. It was done really quickly. Um, so in a way, there couldn't be too much oversight uh, on the team. Otherwise, the project wouldn't get done in time. But that allowed all this stuff to happen really fast, um, sort of very cutting edge. Uh, yeah, and, and it was sort of amazing results at the end. Well, I remember as a kid, you know, that was the first time I saw, like, actual cartoon quality graphics in a video game. Yeah, for us too, <laughs> you know. So we didn't know that the, the process would work exactly uh, as well. Um, and we, we were working on Jungle Book before then um, and doing it more sort of like sprites. Um, but then, and then the animators were excellent. They were doing, it was probably the best animation I'd seen in the game. But then being able to actually take the, the, the Disney cell animation, and I think we, it was a studio in Florida. Those are the animators that were... Disney animators that we were supplying the game animations. Um, and yeah, just seeing that process from the black and white sketch to scanning them in, bringing them in through Dave's tech, and then finally on the screen. Um, yeah, it was a surprise to us, especially on the Genesis, you know, because it had a limited palette, mm-hmm. but it seemed to just find the right colors at the right time, <laughs> you know, to make it all work. It's a lot of like kind of tie in license games at that time, you know, they were kind of quick, dirty games that, you know, some studios put together just for the money. But, you know, Aladdin was like a really good game and it was a worldwide success and a very big game as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, th- I think back now, it's kind of, I guess, amazing how it sort of came together. Um, I think one of the, th- the key things was we weren't trying to be too complicated with it. You know, it's a pretty straightforward platformer. So we, we kept that pretty simple and then there's more people on that game um i mean not that it was a huge team but you know for me and days a bit part uh days or even the alien or terminator days there was only two of us you know so to go to a team where there was like 20 maybe up to 30 people at some point you know uh, feeling that that uh, sort of bench power um that sort of obviously helped uh, pull it together and the organization to make it happen too that was, all those were new things to me yeah, was that kind of a changing point in the in the industry then, was it, around then? Yes, things were starting to feel grown up, you know, and I think actually leaving the UK and coming out to the States, and uh, even when I came to Virgin, it's the first time I was really working at a large company. Um, before I was a contractor, so I was largely working from home, even though sometimes I go into Probe. But Probe was very loose as well. And so coming to Virgin, things felt very organized. You know, it's like, I'm in America, I'm in a corporation now. Um, and there were art departments rather than just people wandering around. <laughs> you know, there was a process to things. So first, I wasn't sure if I was going to really fit in. And because you know, a lot of these people were more sort of college graduates and I've gone through a process and moved into games, whereas I just sort of was from the ground up. Um, but then, I, you know, after a short period of time, I realized, oh, you know, no, it's just the same. <laughs> it's just the same, just on a larger scale. So how did you guys uh, go and form Shiny Entertainment well, shortly after Aladdin, though, you know, you could tell that Virgin was changing. I mean, I really had a great year at Virgin. Uh, it's a good experience, and coming to America is exciting. Um, but they, you know, I think they were very excited by the success of the game. Um, the company was scaling up because I think when I joined, there was about like 30, 40 people, and by the by the next year, there was like 
100, 200 people. There are people turning up every day. You know, the company has sort of changed quite a bit. And it's becoming apparent that they were going to sort of build up and sell off. And so, you know, we were just looking for something else um, and wanted to have some freedom. And, uh, and of course, me and David worked together in the past. And so it didn't seem like too much of a stretch uh, for us to uh, to sort of up and start our own thing. Just a little bit different because we have obviously the green cards and stuff to work out. But other than that, it was kind of like, hey, let's, let's just do this. Let's, let's do this for ourselves. Well, kind of following on from, you know, you, you work on Disney's uh, Aladdin with that, you know, amazing animation style and all those kind of different things a character could do. Obviously, Earthworm Jim um, came along after that. What, what was kind of the concept behind Earthworm Jim then? Where did the idea come from? Uh, well, we were like, let's, what should be our first game? And we we're trying to think of uh, uh, how to just get a steady start to this company. And we thought, well, let's just pick a license. You know, we, we kind of hoped that we could, like, talk um, Disney into giving us Lion King. Mm. Uh, but, but they were going to stick with Virgin, so we we understood that. Um, but we're like, well, we should probably just get another license um, and, and get ourselves established and up and running, and then we can move into original stuff. Um, and so me and Dave sat and looked through a bunch of these uh, IPs that we got from the sort of Hollywood lawyers, and they were all dreadful. They were just like, oh, I don't know, robotic boats and things, and I was just like... <laughs> Uh, we couldn't find anything, and um, so we started to think about should we actually just start with our own original game? And uh, but we didn't have anything in mind at that time. And then Doug Tanapple, who had joined Virgin about midway through Aladdin, I think, and had worked on it a little bit, he came to meet with us, and he had this Earthworm Jim character. He had that and a couple of other characters, and he came over to the apartment and he showed us his characters. And as soon as we saw them, we were like, "That's it." Um, sometimes things just work, you know, when you, when we saw that character, we, we didn't have the game worked out about it, but we knew that we had a focus that would work with the game. It's got literally the kitchen sink thrown in there. And, and, you know, that was, you know, what was the game going to be about? It was going to be just about anything we wanted it to be about, you know, having worked on with Disney and then before that and the alien and Terminator and again, you know, having these restrictions put on us, uh, you know, less so in the earlier ones, but, still sort of restrictions on, on how far you could go. And so this was like, well, this is ours. Now we can do what we want and we can take the game wherever we want. And so we kind of went off in, in just about every direction possible. That's kind of the fun of the game, I think. I love the um, kind of punk art style. It kind of reminds me of Ren and Stimpy mixed with the Sex Pistols or something <laughs> mad like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it was a constant evolution. We didn't really sort of have a stated plan. We didn't have a sort of art plan or anything. It was just a... I mean, Doug had his other characters, and we were building a level around each of these characters. That's really sort of the only guideline that we had. But how it would look or, or not, um, me and uh, Steve Crow was the other background artist for that. Um, we, we were just pretty much coming up with whatever made us happy, <laughs> you know, and it was working for everyone else. And what did Sega think of Earthworm Jim? <laughs> you know, I never had any sort of direct conversations with them. Um, there's one story. Uh, that uh, they obviously could tell that it was going to be something good because when we both the SNES and the Genesis had the same number of levels, and then when Sega, when it came time to actually you know uh, publish the game, Sega came at the last minute and said, "Put another level in ours, and we'll give you X amount of dollars break on the cartridge costs because cartridges were hugely expensive back then." Yeah. And so Dave came to him and, "Do we have any level in there that we could use?" And I'm like. And this was literally about a day, day and a half before the cartridges were going out. And so I pulled up some, uh, it was actually intestinal distress. Um, that was just some sort of cobbled together thing that I had 
uh, from some sort of test graphics. And I, I made that level overnight. They put some code in in the morning, and by the afternoon, it went out the door. Oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> I guess I liked it. They took a risk on that. Uh, I was sweating bullets on that one. Um, but it, it turned out okay. Thankfully, because Dave's engine was so robust, you know, I could sort of uh, rely on it without having so much testing going on. We didn't have much testing back then. That was uh, such amazing stuff with the graphics and the kind of level of the parallax scrolling. The way it went back on that game, it kind of gave that fake 3D kind of feel. It was amazing. Yeah, and, you know, because Dave's engine had, you know, we've been using it for a number of years and, and we were uh, just to keep ourselves interested in trying to find ways to push it, you know, um, without breaking it. So it was, yeah, Jim was uh, a stretch. Jim uh, 2 um, was, you know, I was starting to get a bit bored with the format. And so we were like, at that point, we sort of pushed the engine even further, uh, trying to get bring different sort of modes, different uh, angles and looks. Um, and I think we sort of pushed our engine as far as we could with Jim 2. Well, Special Edition has got a character based on you in it as well, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, another one of those. <laughs> we need another level, quick. <laughs> so uh, I whipped that one up pretty quickly. Um, and we're, you know, coming up with names is the worst thing. It really is. Um, it's a struggle each time. And you can tell even the, the names of our levels are uh, seemingly pretty random. Mm. Um, and uh, I just, I needed a creature. And I went to the animators and went, hey, I need I need a big beast who's going to chase me around here. <laughs> and I think it was Ed Schofield animated for me, and he just called a big brutey. And that then just became the level because no one else wants to think about naming things. <laughs> so that's how it works. If you'd worked there, you'd have a level named after you. And uh, what was the whole thing about cows? <laughs> cows everywhere. I remember that. I know. It seemed to just somehow the cow became symbolic for our freedom. Uh, <laughs> break away from publishers. Um, yeah, we kept cows in a few things for a while, but uh, but they've served their purpose. <laughs> well, obviously, around that time, I mean, there was a huge shift in the industry with the move from 2D to 3D graphics. Um, was that much of a change for you? Was it much of a struggle to, you know, go through that change at the time? Uh, oh, I loved it. Uh, I was I was so ready um, after doing so many 2D games, and I remember, like, I think. I think I was working on the first gym game um, when one morning I came in, sat on my PC, I switched it on, and there was something different on my PC than I'd left the night before. And I was mad straight away, like, who's been on my PC? And I, I didn't realize I was looking at Doom. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I, I put, hit the keys, and then the whole screen scrolled and moved, you know, in dimension, and I, I was just freaked out. I'm like, what the hell is this? Someone's done it. Someone's cracked it finally. And so as soon as I seen that, I was excited into 3D straight away um, but we had to look at finish gym and then it's gym 2 and, uh, and it was during gym 2 um, that I thought I'm not going to go onto another Earthworm gym game or after the special edition I guess um, but I, I really needed a, a break uh, just creatively and uh, so I, I, I started doodling and I, I came up with a, the character for MDK um, the Kurt Hectic with a sniper helmet and all that and I just, just did a sketch, and I and I just saw it instantly, and I ran through to Dave, and I went, this is what I'm doing next, <laughs> after I throw him to him. And he's like, and Dave's always excited about stuff. He's like, okay. And uh, and uh, in the company, I was always the one that tended to push uh, technology and try doing different things. There was actually a version of Earthworm Jim that was like pre-rendered uh, 3D, so I was just trying that out. Hmm. So uh, Donkey Kong Country came out, so I kind of wanted to see what it would look like on Jim. 
Um, and the animators, I wouldn't say they hated me for it, <laughs> but, but they liked their technique. So uh, I, I dropped it, but it did actually look pretty interesting. <laughs> so, so when the gym games were done, um, and I was moved to 3D, and I sort of formed a new team around that. Uh, still very small. We only started off with about five of us. And uh, and we just sort of dived straight in. You know, we never made a 3D game before. Our, our lead programmer, Andy Astor, from Andy Asteroids, uh, he had never done a 3D game before. And so we just uh, got a copy of 3DS Max and started uh, building stuff and working out ways to, to get it to move. And so, like, initially, the first month of MDK, it did not look very <laughs> impressive at that point. Um, so it's amazing how much... We had uh, we developed over just uh, just over a year, I think it was, uh, to design and, and build and, and put the 3D engine together for that. So uh, it was very very tough, uh, a learning experience, but uh, enormous fun. And it was kind of a, a fantastic atmospheric world that you created with MDK. The, yeah, that was the, the one thing that um, you know with Doom and then with Quake and with a bunch of the clones that were coming out. I was like, what's with all the grey corridors? You know, I'm like the science fiction and fantasy that I grew up with as a kid and that I imagined that the stuff that I got into making games for to see, um, these kind of, you know, colorful, they could be dark worlds, but they don't need to be, you know, so monotone. Um, they don't need to just be, you know, continual alien style corridors and, um, let's create worlds. And, and that's kind of the sort of statement I wanted to make. You know, I just want to show that, Hey, it could look very different. And I wanted to have a, uh, a free-flowing world as well, which is why I kind of we didn't go down uh, that type of engine where you're building stuff out of little blocks, and you can kind of tell. I wanted like free-flowing models, um, which meant I couldn't have the most complex geometry because the machines just weren't fast enough. Mm -hmm. But still, the the impression of it, and using a bunch of tricks, like Hollywood tricks, you know, to uh, uh, to make the scenes look a lot larger than they were and, and free-flowing, um, and that that was kind of like uh, the, the drive for me. Yeah, yeah, the game running on the on the PlayStation as well. I mean, that must have been an interesting console when you first got your hands on that. Well, that I didn't actually handle that port. That was done by Interplay. Okay. Um, and uh, and I was yeah pleasantly surprised, you know, that they managed to uh, pull off as much as they did. Yeah, so that was a yeah pretty successful port. Well, it was you know a game that had many firsts in there, including it was the first game you could do headshots in as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's the the first sniper gun. I, I think uh, I sort of been told. Um, <laughs> I don't take it. Don't think so much of that. I mean, that's just a sort of progressive idea. Um, but yeah, it's a fun. It's a fun thing I had. I, we, I mean, I was more uh, excited by all the other unusual weapons that we'd have in there. You know, the world's smallest nuclear bomb mix and all those type of things. Well, later on, you moved on to do uh, Giant Citizens Kaboto. Yeah, um, again, just uh, with MDK, it opened my eyes and I was super excited. I wish I had more patience and I'd done the MDK 2 next and build the multiplayer in there, but I was I was too excited. I wanted to do this sort of three-race multiplayer game all first after that. Um, and uh, again, I wanted to bring even more color in. Um, with that one, it was kind of like, where would I want to go on vacation? And I imagined these sort of fantasy worlds, um, beaches <laughs> and uh, drinks, um, which is very much as all the world of giants, mm -hmm. where everything takes place. Um, and so, yeah, it was often another adventure. But that one, uh, that's all, that game bit me um, because, as I said before, you know, we didn't really have scheduling or producers before, certainly not in the 16-bit days because we kind of had a sense of how uh, things progressed. 
Um, there was only so much you could do within the engine. Uh, MDK w- was new and different, um, but Giants was such an exponential design. It comes so many different areas that I'd never sort of delved into design-wise before, so I didn't really know quite why I was getting into. Um, so what I, where I thought I would uh, uh, build a game that would take maybe a you know, year, year and a half, I ended up taking three. Um, so it was it was after that game I was like, oh, we need a producer. <laughs> we need to get into scheduling. Someone needs to sit me down and, and scope scoop my stuff out for me because it's, it's just too big now and I can't keep track of everything. Well, I guess the technology had finally reached the point where, you know, all these ideas you had in your imagination you could actually finally do, even if it, you know, might it, take you three years. Exactly, yeah, you know, and I wouldn't have stopped <laughs> if Bob <laughs> hadn't insisted. Um, and um, Interplay were, were awesome with us at the time. Brian Fargo was really, really supportive, even though they were going through some difficult times as well, but they, you know, they continued to support us to get the game out. I mean, it wasn't... I, even that three years, I didn't. The game wasn't finished the way I wanted it to be, um, but I had too many concepts in there. Really, um, if I was to go back and do that again, I'd probably like half the game, and 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 split up over chapters. Um, but still, I'm actually really sort of proud of it, um, and uh, I think I thought it was like, you know it was pretty daring at the time, and no, no one quite understood what we were doing. Um, unfortunately, even when we released, <laughs> people still didn't know quite what the game was about. Uh, so it's a hard, it's a hard one for marketing to to sell. Well, you were planning a kind of spiritual successor, First Wonder, weren't you as well? I was, yeah. That was um, so after Giants, um, we did one more sort of creative game that way, which is armed and dangerous, but on a sort of smaller scope. But then this, you know, the industry was just changing, and they they weren't willing to take those type of risks anymore. Um, not that we were a huge budget; we were a pretty small budget in comparison but still um everything was either you know doubling down on licenses or established ip and so it's become harder and harder for us to find partners willing to to sort of take that that gamble so really those type of games sort of dried up um through that period and i was just moving on to other things um and then you know i saw the the success tim schaefer had you know with kickstarter and that whole thing um and I think that if we had maybe tried to launch something at the at the outset with when Kickstarter was was first discovered, uh, we might have had more success. But by the time we sort of got around to taking a chance with it, you know, the market was pretty saturated, and we we, we couldn't really uh, connect with any of our old users, you know, any of the Giants fans or MDK fans. So um, it was a, it was a difficult experience, but an interesting one, and something that uh, you know I might swing around to again now that I sort of understand it better. But there was definitely, you know, a lot of uh, passion, a lot of um, unfinished business <laughs> with Giants. And so maybe at some sometime in the future, I'll get to revisit that again. Well, uh, what are you up to nowadays? I'm uh, at a company called Other Ocean. Um, it's run by my friend Mike Micah. He's been in the game industry. I mean, I met him back in the Earthworm Gym days. Uh, if you look him up, you can see he's got an array of, <laughs> a huge array of games. Uh, he's developed um, one that I think he got uh, pub, uh, attention for the past couple of years was iDarb. That one, I Dream of a Red Box, a game that was actually developed like via Twitter. So I'm working here on uh, some R&D stuff right now. So I, I can't actually say exactly what I'm working on, but hopefully in the next couple of months that will that'll come out and uh, uh, some fun announcements. 
Oh, okay. Something oh, looking to look forward, forward to. It. Yeah. <laughs> Little what? teaser there. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I'm not normally a secretive one. I'm usually happy to, to spill the beans, but um, this isn't for once. This isn't my company, so I can't actually just uh, open my big mouth. Well, if people do want to keep up with uh, what, what you're up to when your announcements finally come out, where can they find you online? Uh, good, good question. <laughs> I'm not very good at keeping up to date online. Um, something that this next project might actually change. So. Uh, uh, I do have a website out there. I think probably nickbrady.com or something like that. I can't even remember. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look too hard. Just uh, just follow the press announcements. Excellent, Nick. Well, it's been really nice having a trip down memory lane with you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Sure, no problem. Thanks, guys. Thanks.